Welcome to Exploring Possibility. I'm your host, Christopher Giel, and with this show, my mission is to empower you. I want to inspire those who have forgotten their true worth, their highest potential, and their ultimate capability. I'll be exploring topics that are aimed towards personal growth to help you gain insight and approach life with new perspectives. I want you to increase your impact and help you live a more fulfilling life because limited thinking equals limited being. Let the show begin. Hi there, guys, and welcome to Exploring Possibility. This is episode number 33. For those tuning in for the first time, welcome to the show. Thanks for listening in today. Thanks for growing with us and being willing to participate in this discussion and being willing to learn and be open to new things. I welcome you, and I would suggest that you hit that subscribe button so you just stay tuned for all future episodes and then also to all my regular listeners guys thank you for tuning in today and i hope that you guys all enjoy this episode so today we'll continue to explore people and ideas that inspire empower and impact as we move forward on this journey of expanding our potential and discussing things around the mind the body the spirits and all things that support that so I'm always committed to helping people achieve their goals. So if you tune in today, you know, especially that I'm, I'm tuning into you guys today and I want you guys to achieve your goals and become a better version of yourselves and just be that person who you want to be. So let me assist you with that today. And just once again, once again, thank you for tuning in today. So let me introduce you to today's guest. Her name is Jennifer Whitaker, and she's an empowerment strategist. Jennifer works with practitioners and clients who typically feel you know, stuck and overwhelmed by all the typical and mainstream modalities. And over the past several years, Jennifer has studied the lifelong effects of trauma. That is like her field of expertise. She's also studied the effects of abuse, and she has discovered several tools and techniques that work well for overcoming these effects that often hold us back in life. I know this has happened to me multiple times. It even happened to me recently where I got stuck in my own way, in my own emotions and, and thoughts around those emotions. So she's here to help us with that. She uses all these sorts of tools and techniques to help her clients to explore the depths of themselves in order to affect a positive and magnificent change, what we call a transformation in their own lives. So what we spoke about, we spoke about emotions and trauma. And then questions I got into were things around how to renegotiate the nervous system and how the emotions, you know, how our emotions get affected. Is it by the inner world, the outer world, or both? How we discern emotions and what they mean, how we label them. And then also lastly, we just touched on trauma and how we work through it and how she would suggest that anyone go and work through their trauma they experienced in their life. She gave us so many insights within this episode. She gave us her backstory. You'll see it's quite a long conversation, but it's filled with nuggets, guys. It's filled with amazing things around your emotions and some deep insights. And I really hope that you enjoy listening to our conversation and that you can take something away today to go and work on your own emotions and become, you know, more tuned into what you're feeling and why you are feeling those emotions. So as we go throughout this episode, just try and think about your own emotions. Are you in control of your emotions 
are you working between that gap of stimuli and response? Are you able to control those sorts of emotions? And also just how you deal with your inner and outer world when it comes to emotions. Are you letting those things affect your decision-making every single day? Or are you in control of your emotions? So as you go throughout this episode, just listen out for those key points that I mentioned. Think about the questions that I just gave you. And just think about all those things. And that's going to help you be more intentional as you listen throughout this episode. So I hope that you guys enjoy and I'll see you at the other end. Hi guys. So today we'll be talking about trauma and its effects on the body as I usually just love chatting about things that explore possibility, things that help us to overcome obstacles, things that help us to explore more of our own potential. And today I've got Jennifer Whitaker on the show to chat to us about that. So welcome, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Super excited to have you on the show today. Thank you, Christopher. It's an honor to be here. Awesome. As I said, we'll be chatting about things, trauma and possibility and emotions and all of those sorts of things, because I mean, I'm sure we're both humans here and everyone listening today. Also, they go through all these things called emotions every single day, but a lot of us don't know how to manage them or how to even identify our emotions at any point in the day. And I'd love to jump into that today. But before we go into that, let's just briefly get into your story. Like, just tell us who is Jennifer Whitaker. So we just have some context for today. Okay. Um, well, first of all, um, I, I live in Columbus, Ohio in the United States. Um, I've lived in Ohio my whole life, just not, I've moved around within the state. Um, so I'm a Midwestern girl. Uh, I, I tend to, um, in my work, straddle the line between what I call the science and the woo-woo. Um, so I study um, and take classes to learn to work with developmental and intergenerational trauma, which are my specialties. Um, you know, they're all different types of trauma, and those are the two that I really hone in and focus on. Um, because I went through a lot of trauma in my early childhood, and I've been able to look back on my life and notice like how the trauma created dysfunction and dysregulation. I can see how I got myself into some sticky situations in life and then turned around and tried to blame the other person. It was all your fault <laughs> for my decisions. <laughs> and the, the trauma work that I do helps people um, from pulling from some of the more body-based types of therapies because I work to help people renegotiate their nervous systems. The type of trauma that I work with leaves an imprint in the nervous system, which is what I call our nonverbal parts. Um, and the, the nonverbal part that I work with the most is the experiencer. It's that part of us that experiences life through the language of um, sensation and emotion. And that's all nonverbal. So if you're trying to work with your sensations and emotions, the sensations are those things that you experience in your body. And emotions are, you know, obviously like angry, sad, um, you know, frustrated, irritated, happy, you know, joyful, um, and helping people sort out the story, helping people identify an actual emotion. A lot of times people don't even know what emotions are. Yeah. I have clients who come to me and say, I feel abandoned. I feel rejected. Well, those aren't feelings and they're not emotions. That's the interpretation that you give mm. it. That's the meaning that you're applying to the situation. So I've got to get below that meaning to figure out 
what are you experiencing within yourself that you interpret as abandonment or that you're choosing to give the meaning of, okay, this is rejection. Um, so those are some really, really important skills to have. And so that's um, enabled, I've been able to apply that to myself. And now I'm working with clients individually to help clients um, apply this. And I'm in, like I said, before we recorded, I'm in the very beginning stages of putting together classes, but it's going to take a little bit of time before those manifest. I relate so much with everything you just said in terms of the emotions and stuff. And I can really relate with the, the idea of coping with situations with coping with feelings or just coping with a story and not knowing what's underneath. I can mm-hmm. super, super deeply relate to that. And you, know, you speak about below the meaning. That's very, very interesting. I want to jump into that before I, before we get to the next question. Um, and you also speak about renegotiating the nervous system. I've never heard about someone like come from that angle of renegotiating that. So what do you mean by renegotiating the nervous system? Uh, so, so what can happen is, um, well, and I'll just give you a situation from my life as an example. Um, when I was a little kid, there were some older guys that worked for my father. My father's been self-employed my whole entire life. And so some of his employees who were older than me took it upon themselves to tell me a joke that was really inappropriate to tell a child my age. And I didn't understand it. Um, my response got a little bit out of hand. I ended up getting in trouble. And all and these guys, you know, who were like late teens, early 20s, they thought it was funny. And at one point, like when I got in trouble and my dad was yelling and screaming at me and, you know, to the point like he had this vein popping out of his head. Um, the, these guys who originally told me this joke were one of them was like literally on the floor rolling and laughing with tears coming out of his eyes. Now to them, it was a funny situation. Um, Dad was angry and yelling at me because of my role in it. And I didn't understand. I was so humiliated in that moment. And I wasn't very old. I was, you know, maybe I'm trying to remember maybe six six years old. So I wasn't very old and I didn't understand why I was being laughed at, why I was being yelled at. I didn't have a comprehension as to what everybody's reaction was. So I went into this overwhelming amount of shame, like, oh my gosh, they're laughing at me. And I didn't understand why I thought I was doing something that, um, you know, where I would like fit in and be one of the guys Mm -hmm. and they'd give me a high five and they'd be like, oh man, that's awesome. Instead, they laughed at me. Um, I figured my dad would have a similar reaction and here he's yelling and screaming at me. And so that was the moment that um, shame uh, really just kind of overtook my life. And I don't know that there was intention to hurt me or to harm me in that situation. So what that did was that brought this moment of, freeze into my system because we've all heard of the fight, flight, or freeze response. Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely in freeze. And there is a felt sense to fight, flight, freeze, and the fourth F, which is fawn. There is a felt sense to it. And so my body was going into this tightness, this constriction. I wasn't able to breathe in the moment. It was just like this ultimate panic with this wide eyed. I'm like, oh my God, what did I do wrong? So I started to compensate my behaviors. I didn't take it upon myself after that to do things that 
I thought were what other people wanted me to do. I waited for people to tell me what to do. I waited until I had the okay to do something. So I lost my sense of adventure that early in life. And that, you know, um, and it created this adaptability that I have to be perfect. I can't show something, you know, or I can't express myself if I'm not perfect, because what if I get laughed at again? What if I get yelled at again? What if I'm humiliated to that extent? And that behavior turned into um, being the nice person, being the savior. And I would always be the one that people would talk to when they had their problems, Um, which, uh, you know, there were times in my life that became exhausting. Um, for me, because I didn't know how to set a boundary and say, I'm sorry, I, I really don't have time right now. Um, can we talk about this another day? I didn't have that capacity in my life. So I was constantly giving myself away. And I came to realize through my own experience that um, I went through this phase where people used to tell me, oh my gosh, you're nice. You're just such a nice person. And then I came to realize that niceness is a dysfunction as a result of trauma. What we really want to aim for is kindness. Kindness is adaptive. Niceness is maladaptive. And I spent years in that maladaptive niceness. And being the nice person, I had an inability to say no. If you don't have the ability to say no, by the way, your yeses mean nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was that person. I would say yes to everything. Um, So I didn't have a good sense of boundaries. I didn't have a good sense of myself, my own autonomy, and my own authenticity. And um, that really created a lot of resentment and bitterness um, inside of me that I was constantly just trying to hold in and not express, not, you know, let the nice person come out. But I was trying to hold in all this other stuff that I felt about always being nice. So inside of myself, I had this anger and rage that was directed at me because I didn't know how to say no to other people. And I started to notice myself projecting that anger and rage out at other people by pointing the finger, by look what you did, look what you made me do, or I didn't want to do that. And so it was, I ended up taking classes in somatic experiencing, um, which somatic experiencing is Peter Levine's program and renegotiating the nervous system uh, is a phrase that we use in the SE world a lot um, because all of that trauma, that humiliation and that shame that I experienced left an imprint in my nervous system um, that was, and that imprint was in my subconscious. It wasn't in my conscious awareness. It wasn't like I thought, oh my gosh, here's that feeling from when I was <laughs> six. I have to adapt my behavior. This is all part of our subconscious processing. And so every time that feeling would come up, that imprint in my nervous system would send me into a reactive behavior, not a responsive, but a reactive behavior that was the result of you know that imprint where I would go into my people pleasing. I would go into oh, okay, you have a problem. I can help you fix that. So I would become the healthy helperton. And whenever you become that helper all the time, that's the sunny side of control. Um, So I had to reel that in so I could get out of my dysfunction and help people in a more adaptive, functional way to where I wasn't harboring the bitterness and resentment as a result of my own reactionary behaviors. 
There's a lot of information in there, and that is a big story to kick us <laughs> off with. Actually, it's a nice, it's a nice story and a nice framework mm-hmm. that we can now use as an example as to all the things mm-hmm. that happened, all the emotions yeah. that you went through, all the mm-hmm. habits that it built with inside of you, um, the power mm-hmm. that it took away. There are so many things that I took from that from that one story, and that mm-hmm. just leads me to the next point, like so nicely. If if we mm-hmm. look at that entire journey and what you went through and what you experienced. One of the steps that I feel a lot of people are missing is that they don't know how to identify. They don't know how to identify whether something is serving them or not. They don't know how to understand what, what is this thing that is happening to me. So like, what do you think is the first step if we want to start thinking about our emotions and whether it's helping us or not, how can we start to understand it? How can we interpret it? Like where, where's the starting point for anyone that wants to start dealing with any sort of emotional scar or any emotion? Yeah. Um, the, the advice that I would have on something like that, and this is what I did myself, um, is stop. Just, you know, whatever you're doing, stop. Don't respond. Don't react. Don't do anything. Take some time intentionally. Take some time in your life to sit and reflect What are those things that are stuck in your craw that you just can't let go of? And this is what I did. Um, And it happened at the end of a relationship because I'd had a series of several, um, I think four relationships in my adult life um, that ended. And I started to look at, oh my gosh, why do I keep dating the same person who treats me the same way, just in a different body? <laughs> you know, it was like the same, the same jerk with, yeah. you know, a different face <laughs> every time. And I had to sit back and say, okay, I've been blaming the other this whole time. And what's the common element? And this was also the point in my life where I had been introduced to the concept of the law of attraction. And so I was starting to learn about the law of attraction and what that meant. And what really stuck out to me at that point in my life was you attract into your life what you are. And that really got my wheels turning. And what changed things for me and really, and it's still a practice that I do on a regular basis is to stop and go within and reflect on myself. Stop focusing on other people. So I had to stop focusing. um, When I was learning about the law of attraction, I chose to stop focusing on the behavior of my exes and look at what is it about me that's attracting these people into my life? Because my first thought was if we attract into our lives, what we are, oh my God, I'm a bloody net. I'm, I'm a basket case. I'm a mess, mm. <laughs> you know, like I am just out of control, dysfunctional. And so what is it about me that's attracting this dysfunction into my life on a repetitive basis? And that was when I started to realize, oh my gosh, my niceness is a dysfunction. It's not adaptive. It's maladaptive. My um, always giving myself away and my need to help other people and be that savior for other people was keeping me stuck in a state of victimhood. Um, because I, and, and then, um, you know, I started to, you know, again, learn more and more and more. And then I heard about, you know, they call it the triangle of victimization. 
And on the points of that triangle, you know, you've got the martyr, which is obviously the victim, you know, oh, poor me in every situation. But also on that triangle of victimization, you also have the perpetrator, or a lot of times we call him the abuser, and the savior. And I would go into that savior role all the time. But what kept me in the role of the victim as the savior is I had to have an abuser in my life or a victim in my life so I could save them. Um, So the abusers, like I would date people who tended to veer toward the abuser role because I somehow thought I could change them. I could do something that would make them realize they don't have to be abusive and I could swoop in and save the day. And, you know, so that was my predominant role. And I was constantly um, like gravitating toward people with these abusive behaviors. And these abusive behaviors were behaviors that um, on that subconscious level put me in my comfort zone because it was very similar to how my parents treated me. And by today's standards, both of my parents would would fall into that abusive category. Um, You know, back in the 70s, they were more like the red foremans who'd stick a foot up your ass. Um, sorry, can I say that? <laughs> I don't know if you watch that 70s show in, um, you know, South Africa, but it's a comedy show that, that was popular, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago here. It still is on Netflix. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, but that's how my parents were. You know, that was the, the parenting style that a lot of parents had in that generation. And now we're feeling the, the fallout from it, being parents ourselves and seeing and this is where the intergenerational component comes in because I can see really clearly now how those behaviors got passed from my parents to me and to my son. And I'm in, you know, like we're all in the process in my family of like rectifying and going into adaptive, healthier behaviors to move forward in life. Right. Yeah. The key thing, one of the key things that I took from uh, that entire conversation now was that uh, a great starting point or great place to be in is a place of awareness. It's to be aware yes. of, yeah, of, of what you are feeling, even what meaning you are giving to something that might be happening. And that Absolutely. to me is a key, key, key insight um, from that entire thing. Mm-hmm. And now you spoke about the environment. So you, you brought that a little bit in where you talk, you spoke about your parents that mm-hmm. shaped some of like your how would we say identity in a way, some of your beliefs, some of those things. And another question that I just have is how much does our outside environment play a role within the emotional space, like within our emotions and within that type of um, idea. So like within the idea of what we feel, what we believe, how much does the outside shape that or is it just in, uh, based in all internally? Is it all about how you add meaning or is it also, is it like you strike a balance between the two where it's a little bit of what happens to us from outside, but also how we interpret and how we add meaning to things? Uh, well, that's a really big question. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and we have to, we have to go back to childhood to start um, with an answer to that question, because in childhood, the first seven to eight years of life in those developmental years, um, our frontal lobe in our brain is not it's, it's not fully formed. Like it's not fully developed for men or women until their twenties. Um, so in childhood, we are in a different brainwave state. Um, so we're more in that brainwave state where 
that part that I mentioned earlier, the experiencer that experiences life through the language of sensation and emotion. That's also the part of us that um, includes our, our instincts, our gut instincts, our survival instincts. Um, those feelings that we get when we're like, uh, you know what, this sounds great, but something's telling me I should say no. Mm. Something's telling me, you know, like, I don't really feel bad today, but I think I'm going to stay home, which did happen to several people the day that um, the Twin Towers were attacked in 9-11. Mm. You know, like, how did they know, even though that you know, you hear these stories, how did they yes. know to stay home? So that type of gut feeling, being able to identify and follow that, um, that's all part of that subconscious experiencer. So if you go back to childhood, imagine a home where the parents are arguing all the time and there's a lot of stress in the home. The child might not be able to verbalize the stress on what's going on, but they can sure feel it. And I think we all know that experience. If you've ever walked into a room and there are a couple people sitting in the room and they look up and they're like, hi, Christopher, come on in. How are you today? Come sit down and have a conversation. But you're like, uh, okay. <laughs> and you can just cut the tension with a mm. knife in the room. It's like they're smiling, but you can just feel that something's off. Yeah. And so who knows, maybe they were arguing or fighting or who knows, maybe you, you know, walked into a you know, secret conversation. I don't know, but <laughs> you know, you can tell that there's a disconnect between what they're saying and how it feels, or there's a disconnect between the words and the, the nonverbal cues that you're getting from them. So their, their body language, their micro expressions, um, you know, even because um, I, you know, I, I study body language, I study statement analysis, I study micro expressions and, you know, elicitation, things like that, because it's so important um, with the work I do. That's not just for law enforcement. That helps me as a trauma specialist, um, you know, work with my clients. And so the experiencer takes in all of this information. And as little kids, we don't have the capacity to verbalize what we're feeling. So little kids acted out, you know, with tantrums and, you know, emotions and crying and laughing and, you know, whatever, you know, we see kids act out how they're feeling all the time. Now, when we come into adulthood, if we don't consciously do anything to stop and reflect on ourselves, which is what I recommended earlier, stop and stop worrying about, okay, look what you made me do. The question should not be, look what, or, you know, you know, why did you make me do that? Or look at what you made me do is not the biggest concern. The concern should be, why did I allow that to happen? Mm. Or what happened, like what within me what did I miss? Where did I miss the red flag? What nonverbal cue did I miss? Or how am I missing the signals? Because the signals are all there if we know what to look at. So in order to get to that place where we can become discerning, it takes work on ourselves. And a lot of people in the world, I think, just take the easy road because it's so much easier to stay in that victim state and to point the finger at other people and say, look what you made me do rather than admit, oh crap, I made this series of decisions that led me to this place where this thing happened that I didn't want to happen. That is taking personal responsibility and holding yourself accountable. And that's not easy to do because sometimes you have to realize that you're the, you're the jerk in the situation. It's not always the other.
sometimes it's you. And if you're the common element in something, this repeating pattern, it's worth looking at yourself. Otherwise, that pattern is going to continue to repeat your whole life. The last sentence, it's actually like it's so, it makes so much sense. It's so simple. It's so straightforward, but not a Mm -hmm. lot of people practice that and think about that. Like just as you said it, I was like, like I just think (laughs) back to so many people that I've spoken to and, you know, they come and speak to you about problems or emotions that they feel or they're struggling in life. They have these obstacles, but it just keeps coming. It's like the same cycle. Mm -hmm. It's the same pattern all the time. And and now when you said that, I could just see all those people. I'm, I'm just like, <laughs> that is so applicable. So for those that are yeah. still tuned in and listening, thank you for, for listening in and staying with us. And I think that is a big thing that Jennifer just mentioned. It's all about if, if we want to grow, if we want to get past these obstacles, um, these, these, these emotions, these things that we add, that we, that we add ourselves into our own lives. If we want to get beyond that, if we want to grow, you need to start taking responsibility and say, how can I respond to this better? How can I look at this from another perspective? What different meaning can I add? Like, how do you and how can you take responsibility for what is happening? Because I also feel that once we do that, once we do take that responsibility and be say, right, we'll handle this, then you start making positive change. That's when you start embracing the obstacles and actually start working towards getting past it. And I truly agree that people do take the other route of the easiness of not doing anything and just letting it slide. But then we don't, we don't make any progress. We don't make any headway. Mm-hmm. So there's something that I'm, I've been thinking about a lot and that is with, with our emotions, like you've, you've mentioned a lot about emotions now and how we identify them and all of that. Now, sometimes we have emotions and it might be labeled as a bad emotion or, or it might be painful or it might be negative, but, how many time, How many of those times are they actually negative or, health or, or negative or, or painful instead of just there to help us? Like, how do we spot whether an emotion is there to actually guide us towards something else? Like, how do we make that discernment of this pain or this painful emotion is here, this negative, shall we call it, emotion is here to actually guide us past whatever we need to do or show us that we shouldn't be here today? Like, how do we discern in that moment at that point? Uh, Well, I, I encourage my clients to drop the labels of negative and positive emotions. Mm. Um, Every single emotion we have is trying to guide us in some way or another. Mm. Um, So calling emotions, negative emotions, because that has a negative connotation Mm. to it. Um, negative has come to mean bad and something that we don't want. So negative means something we need to get rid of. And I cannot get on board with the positivity movement, like to think positive all the time, Mm. because if you're just going straight to thinking positive all the time, you're not resolving why the discomfort and the pain and the suffering is coming up in your body because these emotions that people like to refer to as negative, they call them negative because it does create this physical sensation of suffering inside yourself whenever they come up and people don't want to experience that 
uncomfortable sensation in their body that's attached to those emotions because it is a sensation. Um, so a lot of times if you think about anger, there's a reason that you know we associate red with anger because red's associated with heat. And a lot of times you do feel really hot or you get you know flushed in your face whenever you're angry. And people don't want the discomfort of the anger, but let's look at why did the anger come up in the first place? So the best way to start working with that is when you notice an emotion. And again, it goes back to awareness because in order to notice the emotion, you have to be self-aware. I cannot emphasize self-awareness enough. I just, I can't do it. There's (laughs) self-awareness is the heart of it all. So you have to notice that, okay, I'm starting to experience anger. What just happened? And why do people get angry? And why did I just get angry? Did somebody just cross a boundary? Because if somebody crossed a boundary, that can bring up anger. Um, And so there's this thing that we talk about in some of my trauma trainings. Um, I just kind of lump them together as trauma trainings. We call it righteous anger. You're like, okay, somebody crossed a boundary and I have the right to be angry and upset. Now, just because I have the right to be angry and upset doesn't mean that I should let my anger dictate my words or emotions because that's when, you know, we start to throw things or break things or scream at people or, you know, become violent in extreme cases. That's um, awful. Yeah. I'm not encouraging people to, to let the anger control their words or their behaviors. I do encourage people to go into some self-questioning around that anger. Like what just happened? Maybe um, something happened, you know, where, okay, somebody crossed a boundary or there was an injustice. Maybe you need to reestablish a boundary with somebody. Maybe you need to reset the parameters of your relationship with that person. Maybe it's because there's, you know, an injustice that's happening in the world and the anger, um, you know, what is that about? Sometimes when we go into that feeling of hopelessness and helplessness, it's overcoupled with anger, which means hopelessness and helplessness is attached to a feeling of anger because the anger appears as if it's a motivator and it can turn that helplessness and hopelessness feeling into, you know, this um, sense of, um, anger where we're pointing the fingers at other people all the time saying, look what you did or look what you're not doing. A lot of times we hear, look what you're not doing. That happens on social media right now. Look at the um, the hype right now, just over the virus, this pandemic coronavirus that's going around. You know, people are like yelling at me because I'm not putting my hands in the air. And this has happened on my Facebook page just this week. I'm not putting my hands in the air. I'm not running around in a panic over this virus. I'm not canceling my travel plans that I have later this month or next month because of it. Now, if there's a travel ban and I have no choice, I will, but I'm not going to choose to cancel my travel because of it. Um, People who are immunocompromised know they are, and they're already taking precautions. They have been, they do every year when the flu goes around and when pneumonia's floating around. They're already taking precautions. I wash my hands and I know I wash my hands. It's pretty sad that we're in 2020 and we have to tell people to, you know, teach basic hygiene. You know, so, you know, it's, it's that type of concept where it's so much easier to say, I'm in a panic. You need to be too. And I'm going to hate you because you're not in a panic and I'm going to spew things at you. And I'm going to say, you need to do this and you need to do that. And da, 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 da. And it never feels good when people tell us what we need to do. It doesn't, it just doesn't. So to go back to why I can't get on board with the positivity movement is 
think about how it feels when somebody tells you what you need to do or when you're not having a very good day and you're maybe a little down or feeling a little bit on that sad, like maybe not depressed, like clinically depressed, but maybe just feeling depressed one day. And you're mm-hmm. like, I'm really down in the dumps. Look at how people treat you or look at how people treat you on those days when you're not feeling um where you're just a little bit irritated and agitated and you're not feeling 100% all day or you're fatigued, people treat you differently. And so there's a little bit of a, Oh, what's up your butt, you know, and like you're just kind of shunned and pushed off into the corner. Well, there's a part of us and there's a study um, called internal family systems, which is parts work. And with parts work, they do believe that our personalities fragment as a result of trauma. And we all experience trauma to some degree. So we all have some sort of fragmentation to some degree. So there is a part of you that is experiencing anger, there is likely another part of you that's averse to the anger. So if you go straight to the positivity and you don't uncover that anger, you are doing to yourself and shunning a part of yourself, putting it in the margins, throwing it aside the same way people in society and people in your life do to you whenever you're having those bad days. Because there's this, you know, and I'm, you know, again, using the air quotes with the bad days, those days where you just don't feel like yourself. You don't feel like you're all the way here. Like, and maybe there is that anger or irritation or sadness gloominess, whatever. So if you are trying to treat yourself inside yourself the same way society treats you and just, you know, and say, oh, you need to smile more. Um, I don't know if guys hear that. Women hear it all the time. Then you are, that's what I call bypassing or hijacking. You're not doing the work and you're trying to skip the steps. And Mm -hmm. later that's going to bite you in the butt because you're not going to heal anything. And those emotions will keep getting bigger. So when we see these patterns happening, and things repeatedly happening and coming up in our life, every time that comes up, it's an opportunity to make a different choice, to do something different and to make a different choice and to do something different and to implement a new pattern in your life takes self-awareness. It takes self-discipline. And when I say discipline, I don't mean punishment. I mean the discipline to stick to a schedule, to stick to a routine, to stick to the plan that you set for yourself. Um, and I'm not talking about telling other people to do this. You have to figure it out for yourself. <laughs> um, And so what I do in my practice is I help people sort out, okay, what's going to work for you? And so, you know, somebody, one of my clients might come up with, okay, I'm going to try this and then we'll check back in. How did that work for you? Eh, Well, it kind of worked, but it kind of didn't. So, okay, tell me how you think you could tweak this so it might come out differently the next time. And so it's finding ways to interrupt the pattern and put some space between stimulus and response. And stimulus is that thing in our life that activates us into that fight, flight, freeze, or response, fawn response, or, um, you know, that's the stimulus. And the if there's no space between the two, we automatically go into reaction. If we Mm. can put some space in between stimulus and response, then we can devise a response that's more adaptive versus the maladaptive reactions. So did that answer your question? You <laughs> that was a big answering, question. Yeah, that was I, a big question. <laughs> I like asking big questions, but you did answer that. You are answering all these questions quite well. And when you just ended with stimulus and response, uh, the Viktor Frankl quote came to mind. Mm-hmm. Where mm, okay. 
I don't know if he says where he says like the that gap. He, he actually references that gap, and he says mm-hmm. that gap is where the freedom lies. If you can like yes. acknowledge and use that gap, that's when freedom comes. And it yes. just brings me back. You said it again and again. Mm-hmm. Awareness. It brings me back to the idea of awareness. It's all. Mm-hmm. It's where everything starts. And once you have that awareness, and I'm trying to like repeat what you said from what I'm understanding, is that. Um, we shouldn't let our emotions get the best of us. That, and, you know, regardless of the situation, we should acknowledge the emotion and then start asking questions about it. Start asking where it comes from. Why is it there? You know, what, mm-hmm. who did, who did what to me in terms of my perception? Like, why do I think this person overstepped in this way or, or did this person say something that perhaps um, didn't match with my values or it could be anything. But at the mm-hmm. end of the day, your emotions or all the stimuli gives you an opportunity. I love that when you mentioned that. It gives you an opportunity mm-hmm. to then look at what's happening and then sort of like work on your response in that moment. That is absolutely beautiful. That's, it just shows me how much power we have. But if, if we don't, if we're not aware and if we don't ask questions, we don't think about these things, we can't do anything, anything about it. So that is absolutely yeah. fascinating. I, I talk about um, working with our emotions a lot, like getting a, a brand new puppy. Um, so in childhood, you know, I'm assuming you guys in South Africa know of Pavlov and his experiment yes. with the dog and the salivating and the mm. bell and yeah. So in childhood, we are Pavloved into certain behaviors and we don't even realize that it's happening because our frontal cortex isn't developed. We don't have the level of awareness of an adult. So it's, it's the programming, you know, it's the code. Um, so this programming goes into us in childhood and then we become very reactionary. Well, let's say that you have a dog and you want to change that dog's behavior. Um, You want to Pavlov or condition that dog (laughs) to do something (laughs) different. And how do you do that? So if you think about training a puppy and then you turn around and think about how you talk about yourself and how you talk to yourself inside your own head, if you said to that puppy and you treated that puppy the same way you treat yourself, how's that dog going to act? That is, that is a big one for everyone to take away. <laughs> and so, and, and again, that's huge when it comes to self-awareness because, because you have to know what's going on inside yourself and you have to notice when your thought process goes into, well, I'm not good enough. I'm never going to learn mm. this. I've already tried this and I still can't do it. If you said that to your dog, I've taken you out three times this week and you still mm. can't go poop outside. You're still pooping in my house. And you start talking to your dog after like, we've done this three times. Why don't you have it? (laughs) And that's what we expect. We put so much pressure on ourselves because there is an aspect of us that the learning is very much like training an animal. And it does take time and it takes patience. So if you have the patience, you know, with that puppy that you have with yourself, that puppy is going to chew your shoes. It's going to chew everything in your house. It's going to crap on your sofa, maybe even in your shoe just to send a message. (laughs) And these are subtle things that metaphorically we do to ourselves. I mean, look, how many times have you shit in your own shoe metaphorically in life? And at what point are you going to realize that you're doing it and you're going to stop it? (laughs) So... You know, just kind of like, you know, how we (laughs) self-sabotage. So if you start to treat your emotions and work with changing your responses to your emotions, um, it really is. It's like training an animal. 
it takes time. There you go, guys. That's, there's an exercise that you can go do afterwards. There's a theory, <laughs> an experiment that you can go play with and see how that works out for you and place yourself in the, in the, in the dog's shoes, I guess, <laughs> and see whose shoes you are pooping in. <laughs> so... Um, it's usually your own. <laughs> it's, it's, it is usually your own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's 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 always the case. Actually, that's what this entire show is also about. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I have to say, um, Christopher, I love the name of your show because one of the things that I do with my clients on an ongoing, regular basis is to look at different possibilities. Mm. What could have is, is, are you sure that your interpretation of this event is the only one that's right? Are there any other possibilities, any at all, even just one? And usually one other possibility, uh, you know, and that could come down to, okay, you know, I feel abandoned. I feel rejected. Are you absolutely sure that that other person intended to abandon you or intended to reject you? Is there something else that could be going on? And what if the other person is so insecure that they couldn't step out of their insecurity to do something different and step into that discomfort zone to do something different. And so what if it's all about them and their own insecurities and their own sense of lack within them and it has nothing to do with you? What if that's what's going on? Does that still translate as rejection and abandonment? Or does that translate into, oh my gosh, that person's really struggling too and I didn't realize it. So exploring possibilities is the antidote to coming out of some of these emotional dysfunctions that we get into because our emotional dysfunction leads us to latch on to the story we tell ourselves and believe that that story is the only possibility. And when we're stuck in one possibility, it creates suffering. So I love the name of your show and I, I love what you're doing. It's fantastic. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you so much for that. I mm -hmm. really appreciate it. It's, it's because that's a, it's a foundational belief in my own mind and my soul mm -hmm. and my body. Like it resonates with me very, very deeply. And you mentioned that specific question that I actually sort of base my life on and all the decisions. It's what if, what mm -hmm. if this, like there's, the, this shows the opposite of giving up. It's literally like the what if and everything that you can do and think about. So mm -hmm. that is, I'm, I'm happy that we both are resonating with that and that we can share that value and we can share that energy as well. Because if mm -hmm. we can bring that forward, I definitely think we can change the world, right? Yes. <laughs> so, so let's see how we can open our possibilities in terms of trauma. Because trauma, some, I know a lot of people that sort of trauma or Maybe I don't. Maybe I just think they have trauma. Or maybe they think they have trauma. So mm -hmm. I think some of us are confused. Some are not confused. Some know they've got trauma. What is trauma? Like, what is, is it an emotional signature in our body that is a little bit to a high degree than a typical emotion? What is trauma? So we can start looking at it from an objective perspective and say, this is trauma. It's in me. It's in my body. I need to know that it's trauma. And then after this, we can discuss the steps perhaps of where someone can start saying, what if I do this and think about it this way, I can actually start getting beyond it because I'm sure as you, like I know a lot of people that sit with trauma that never, ever, ever come out of it. Mm -hmm. You obviously work with these types of people. So you, you possibly see people get out of it, but in, in most of my circles, I see people stuck. Mm -hmm. How do we, identify trauma, how do we start getting out of it? Mm -hmm. Where's the power? Um, 
Yeah. So with definitions, there, there are a couple definitions of trauma. And I think the most common definition that people are familiar with is like, um, like life in the ER type trauma. You know, somebody has a horrible accident, mm. Humpty Dumpty's broken, and, you know, you go to the hospital to have Bad Humpty reference. Dumpty put back together. <laughs> so um, so that's, that is a, you know, physical injury type trauma. So when you hear about trauma doctors, trauma nurses, that's what they're working with is the physical, like putting people back together. Right. That's not the type of trauma I work with. Yeah. The type of trauma I work with, the definition is that the trauma is what happens inside of you as a result of what happened to you. So it's anything that limits or constricts your response to a future event that reminds you of the one that just happened that imprinted on your nervous system. So anything... um, So just like I was talking earlier, you know, like these older guys told me a joke Mm. and my response was, um, you know, again, it, it's a, too long of a story to tell with what time we have left on the podcast, you know, like the whole entirety of what happened. Um, but my responsive behavior, you know, was to like draw a picture and present it to everybody. And the guys laughed. I got in trouble. I still didn't understand what happened. Yes. So anytime I had that sensation in my body, it limited moving forward whenever that feeling of shame came up because shame has a very distinct felt sense in my body when it shows up. So anytime I started to experience shame from then on, I would go into a reactionary adaptive maladaptive behavior, you know, like one of my coping mechanisms, I would go into people pleasing, I would go into over explaining, I would go into, um, you know, like trying to talk circles around people or talk Mm. my way through or out of things. Um, I, that's one of my bigger dysfunctions in life. um, When I was younger was trying to talk my way or explain things away. And um, so that became my go-to response anytime I experience shame. So if that's my go-to response anytime I experience shame, then it has limited any flexibility I would have to respond in a different way. So if uh, you get into the same argument every single night with your child when it comes to homework, or if you get into the same repetitive circular arguments with your significant other or your spouse or your boss or your coworker or whoever that might be, um, then you might be stuck in a trauma patterned response or one of those, you know, those trauma responses, I call them trauma responses, because Mm. it's limiting what we call response flexibility, where you can look at each situation individually and realize the person in front of me right now is not my father who screamed at me when I was six. It is not the guys who laughed at me when I was six. Um, It's not the same people. This is a whole different situation. So do I have to respond in the same way or can I choose a different response that's more appropriate for the situation at hand? Or am I automatically responding to that situation when I was six? And a lot of my life, I was automatically responding to that situation that happened when I was six, not the situation that was actually in front of me. So something that comes to mind is, does trauma sit within the body or does it sit within the mind? Like, is it something that we just constantly think about, such as a belief, or does it actually physically sit within the body? 
Yes. Like where, where, where does it sit? How does it? <laughs> it's yes to all of that. <laughs> all of it. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. It to the nervous system, I'm assuming, to the thing mm-hmm. you mentioned yes. earlier. Yeah. Yes, it does. And how do you separate the brain from the nervous system? How do you separate the mind from the brain? Well, tell us. So that's why I said yes, because it's all so commingled. It's all like, yes. Yeah. Which is part, which I think is one of the, um, one of the follies of just humankind in general. Like we, we really do. We try so hard to pick things apart and whittle it down to just mm. that one thing, just that one little thing. Um, I, I have a background in body work and people would come in and it's like, okay, it's just this one little muscle. I'm like, no, it's never just one thing. <laughs> Cause that one little muscle attaches the, you know, the bones, you know, and it's it's like it pulls things out of balance here, and, you know, and it affects the whole body. Yes. <laughs> so it's never just one thing. So we have to start um, looking, I believe, at things and not just, you know, like, okay, what's the one little thing that can fix it? But how do all of our systems work together? How does the mind and the brain and the body, how do our emotions, um, what do the emotions have to do, you know, with our, our hormones? You know, because the, the hormones are the expression of the of, of our emotions. And so, of course, if we have emotional dysregulation, we're going to have hormonal dysregulation. Mm-hmm. And over time, with too much emotional dysregulation, you're probably going to end up with a hormonal d- dysfunction or deficiency or something in your body. I ended up with low thyroid issues, um, never to the point that it was diagnosable. I caught it and I've been able to turn it around. You know, but thyroid issues are a big thing. Adrenal fatigue is a big thing. Well, people who are constantly in fight or flight are more likely to have adrenal fatigue fatigue, you know, because it's working with those survival hormones, those stress hormones, our adrenaline, our cortisol, um, noradrenaline, or, you know, um, and, or epinephrine, norepinephrine. Uh, I forget what you call it overseas. <laughs> Somewhere, <laughs> I, I think here in America, we call it epinephrine and everywhere else they call it adrenaline. Is that right? Yeah. We also call it uh, adrenaline. Yes. Because somehow, and I don't quite understand it, but somehow we have a patent <laughs> issue with the word adrenaline in this country and or hmm. trademarked issue. And so because of that, we can't call it adrenaline, <laughs> which is, it's like, it's stupid. <laughs> the first time that ever that I've heard about that. <laughs> or, or, yeah. I think it's a trademark issue, but something like that. <laughs> so uh, an example just came to my mind when we, as, as we speak about trauma, because I always thought it was, it was like, it, it might've been a bigger thing than what I've like put it in my mind, like w- what I've imagined in my mind. And, and a simple example in my own life would be as a kid, I was not able to stand in front of a crowd and speak at all. Mm-hmm. Like not even in front of one person, like my teacher to do a, a small speech. Like, mm-hmm. do you think that has to do with trauma? Do you think I was traumatized in some way when I was a little bit younger, like just, just before mid or, or primary school? Do you think that that was caused because some sort of trauma or where do you think that example comes from? I'm just trying to like make a connection here in terms of that. Mm-hmm. Cause you always think it, I always mm-hmm. link it to something bigger to something, mm-hmm. but it might be something small, right? As long as it, mm-hmm. as long as it limits you, it limits your behavior. You said mm-hmm. a limiting sensation and you keep doing the same patterns because after that I saw myself doing the same pattern. I never, I was never able to speak in front of anyone. Mm-hmm. So like, I think, yeah. Now, in my humble opinion, I think that gets into some of our um, really, you know, primal instincts. Mm. Um, now, you know, and again, this is my opinion. I, yes. I'm, you know, this is my opinion on it. Um, I, 
I'm, I'm not really coming up with a lot of, um, well, I'm, I'm associating it with research, but not, not specifically, because when it comes to public speaking, public speaking is one of the top fears that people have. doesn't yes. matter what race, culture, doesn't mm. matter where you're from. That is a primal fear that people have, and a lot of people would rather die than speak in public. So they fear public speaking above and beyond fearing death. So what is that about and why does it go across so many cultures? Um, my theory and you know, kind of opinion is I really think that has to do with whenever we lived in smaller tribal cultures. Um, if you, you, you had to stay in favor because your survival depended depended on, you know, like being part of a group and being, you know, part of the tribe or being part of the community. And what would happen if you displeased the chief of the community, if you stood up and spoke or, you know, spoke out against him or, you know, people got angry with you and you were cast out. If you were cast out, that was death. Didn't matter what age you are, child, adult, you know, there were predators that would, we weren't always at the top of the food chain. So um, I, Again, I could be wrong about this, but I really mm-hmm. think it goes mm-hmm. much, much deeper. For some people, if you don't have an actual event in your life where you felt that overwhelming humiliation, like I, I got in front of people and I did this, I did this, I did this, and then this thing happened and I couldn't do it again. There's your trauma that, you know, that caused the, the you know, dysregulation that caused you to limit your response in the future. Um, so if you don't have that in your life, my guess would be that this is something that goes much, much deeper to some of those more primal instincts. Um, now, could I be off on exactly why we have that? I think it is still a little bit of a mystery why that is so common you know, across the world. Mm-hmm. And we do, we fear death. And, and it's, it's crazy that we fear death because that's the... That's the one thing that we all have in common. I don't care who you are. We all have it in common. None of us are getting out of this alive. Mm. We're just not. So why, like, I, I have a hard time understanding why fear death. Why not figure out how to die with grace rather than fear it? Like, mm. we, we always talk about living with grace. Well, if we're going to live with grace, we can die with grace too. Awesome. Yeah, that, that almost like, as you spoke about all those things and the tribes going back. I just thought about your ideas around intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of got to do with that where you, if you can't find a reason or any source of mm-hmm. like any, any proof, then you'll start mm-hmm. looking back into your past generations mm-hmm. to see where, what happened mm-hmm. and you'll start uncovering things that might lead to mm-hmm. emotions that you're feeling today. Has it got to do with that? Um, intergenerational trauma has a lot to do with through lines that come through, um, you know, down through the lineage. Mm -hmm. Like, um, some examples would be, um, you know, like I've got one branch of the family tree where, you know, like there, there's obesity, you know, Mm -hmm. in different generations where you can go back and, you know, so like you have obesity coming down or you have, you know, like diabetes coming down this branch of the family tree or, you know, um, heart disease, mental illnesses, you know, you, you can trace them back through the lineages or alcoholism. Alcoholism is another one that comes down through a particular branch of my, well, a couple of them actually in my family tree. So, um, you know, whenever you see that going from generation to generation to generation, and whenever it comes to alcoholism, I, I would rather just expand that into addiction because just because 
this, my generation might not have an alcoholic doesn't mean there's not an addiction because addiction is far beyond substance and alcohol use. Um, I work with my clients on behavioral addictions Mm -hmm. and behavioral addictions are things like um, chronic complaining chronic gossiping like that's how you connect with other people and that's how you bond that whole misery loves company so if we can bond with our complaints now there are you know again there's a time there's an appropriate time there's an appropriate way to complain and there's also an appropriate way to move through that complaining to find a solution and to move on and to resolve it and leave it where it was but if we are constantly complaining about everything that can be a behavioral addiction. Um, And so we have to look at addictions in a more broader sense um, because those addictions, like even though, okay, like maybe my uncle was, you know, an alcoholic um, and, you know, go back a couple more generations and I had like a grandfather or somebody, you know, one of my greats was, you know, an alcoholic, for example, but nobody in my generation is. So it's easy to pretend that we don't have addiction because there's no alcoholic, but Mm. we have to look at addiction differently. So addiction can be one of those through lines. And why is that getting passed down? What leads to addiction? And with the research, we've realized that um, people who perceive that they're not really well connected with their family. They don't feel bonded. They don't feel a sense of belonging within their own family. They don't feel heard. They don't feel um, worthy. Those are the types of feelings that plant the seeds for addictions. And it doesn't matter what the addiction is. Um, you know that it, So the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection. Mm-hmm. And that, that came straight out of the research of Johan Hari. Um, he, he wrote the book, um, chasing the books. The first one he wrote was called chasing the scream. And the second one was called lost connections and, um, chasing the scream is studying the war on drugs and, um, you know, like really doing a deep dive into looking at what is it about and looking at addiction. And, um, Portugal is a great example because back in 2000, it's been 20 years now, Portugal decriminalized drugs across the board. Um, so in decriminalizing drugs, um, you know, it didn't make it legal. It didn't make it illegal to use or possess. So, um, what it did was it took a lot of weight off of the, um, criminal justice system to, you know, prosecute people, you know, like for dime bag possession. And they also, what was brilliant about Portugal in their reform was they would um, take people who had, who had gone through, uh, who would have um, gone to prison, they put them in rehab and they helped them gain connections in their life. So once they went through the rehab program and they would come out, Uh, let's say, you know, your skill is, you know, with numbers and bookkeeping, they might go to somebody and say, hey, if you'll give him a job to help keep your books and your business, we'll pay half his salary for the first year. And then after that, it's up to him to maintain the job. So they're helping you get back into life and to get back into the world and get back into your communities. And that is something that is hugely lacking. And in 20 years, they haven't 100% eradicated addiction. You're never going to get, there are always going to be a certain number of people, you know, and again, statistics shows us this with just the regular bell curve. You're going to have your standard deviations. Mm -hmm. So you're always going to have this group of people who just can't get past their demons for whatever reason. 
So how can we treat them in a way that's humane instead of pushing them into the margins of society and treat them like they're still humans? Because we don't do that right now. We treat them like they're crap. Yeah, there are so many, once again, topics that we've just covered and so many things we can go on about. Also, like just when you started, you mentioned about genetics and that it leads me to the idea mm-hmm. of ge- epigenetics and how mm-hmm. we can just go on with this conversation for hours and hours. Yes. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring us back in and let us finish off with what I call the three impact questions, um, just so we can have something to take away after this big discussion, because there's so much to now think mm-hmm. about, especially this last part, this intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something to go ponder about in your own life if you if you don't have any trauma, but perhaps some it can spark some ideas of what to do after this conversation. But now mm-hmm. the quick three short questions I'm going to give you to you one by one. Three short questions, three short answers, just so people have something to go and ponder about, go and think about, go and take mm-hmm. action on. I'm always, you need to practice, you need to take action on the things that we say, on the things that we speak about, right? So what is one small action that someone can do right after this discussion to just get unstuck in their emotions? Pause. Mm. Practice the pause. Um, As soon as you notice an emotion, pause before you do or say anything. Yeah. And, And practice the pause. Awesome. Practice the pause. Practice the pause. Yeah. Just pause. Like, you know, it's like, okay, I'm angry. Just pause. And so for some people that can be, you know, counting backwards from 10 before you do anything. That is a very catchy phrase. Catch phrase. Mm -hmm. I love it. Practice the pause. Mm -hmm. It opens up that gap between stimuli and response. Mm -hmm. So what is one thing that someone can stop doing today that is just limiting their experience? So something that they can stop doing with their emotions that is limiting the experience of life. What I would, what I would recommend is build upon the pause. So once you get, once Mm. you're able to pause within that pause, um, instead of stopping something, I would add something more to it within that pause, notice what you're thinking about. So that would be step two. So number one would be practice the pause. Number two would be notice your thoughts in that moment. What are you thinking? And number three would be start to question your thoughts. Is this thought true? Okay, I think it's true. How do I know it's true? What evidence mm. do I have in my life that's, that that's true? Um, would the other person agree with the evidence that I'm presenting? And... Another question, you know, which just kind of goes along with Byron Katie's work, who would I be if I didn't have this thought or if I didn't have this belief, who would I be? And what that means is like, how would I act? How would I approach the world if I didn't? Because a lot of times our emotions are tied in with our limiting beliefs. So what might that look like if I didn't have this limiting belief? How might I feel? How might I respond? Can I imagine feeling differently in this moment if I had a different thought and a different feeling associated with this situation? So practice the pause, notice your thoughts, start to question your thoughts and start to question your beliefs. Because if we don't question our beliefs, if we don't put them to the test, what's the use of having a belief? Then, you know, like if you don't put your beliefs to the test... Why, why have them? You're like, put them to the litmus test, figure Mm. out, is this belief even worth holding on to? There you go, guys. There's some powerful, powerful tips in there. And also if 
something that just came to mind that you can stop doing is just stop disregarding your emotions. Just stop moving past them and letting mm-hmm. things fly. And then what the last thing, the last question that I have is just what is, what is one trait that we can adopt from people that do own their emotions? Like what is that one trait that just these people have that seem to master their emotions? It, it's self-awareness. Yeah, it comes back and, to that. Yeah, I don't circle. know a yeah, I don't mm. know a single solitary person that has mastered their emotions who is not also self-aware. Yes, and I'm not talking about awareness and pointing mm. finger and saying, "Look mm. at you, look at your trauma." <laughs> it's going, oh yeah, there's my trauma. My trauma is showing again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is a big thing. And it's actually, it's funny enough. It's a, well, I'm saying funny enough, but it's so common. Like it's a trending theme within all the episodes. Somewhere, mm-hmm. someone will mention something about self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And it just shows like within this episode, it just comes back because we started with that in the beginning of this episode. It just mm-hmm. brings like, brings us back full circle to yeah where we started. Mm-hmm. So Jennifer, yes. for those mm-hmm. that want to learn more, perhaps get in touch or just mm-hmm. continue listening to other conversations because I'm sure you have wonderful and quite deep conversations around these topics that we just spoke about. Um, mm-hmm. Where do people get hold of you and how can they get in touch? Uh, they can find me at my website, which is jenniferwhitaker.com. Um, my email is info at jenniferwhitaker.com. Um, I'm on Facebook. My business page on Facebook is Jennifer Whitaker. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter and I admit I forget about Twitter. Um, I don't check Twitter very often, even though I have an account. Um, I'm, I'm not, I don't know, like I'm, I'm not fantastic with social media. I might go, I might have one day where I'm on there on and off Mm. all day long and then I'll go two or three weeks and, you know, barely on there. So I'm, I, I've been breaking the habit of social media because I found myself addicted a couple years ago, just like wasting Mm. days scrolling. And, um, so it's one of those weird edges, you know, like alcoholics in recovery, (laughs) you know, it's like, (laughs) how, how do you put yourself out there on social media without, you know, it's, it's like, every time I do that, it's like drinking a wee dream, you know, but being an alcoholic in recovery. So I'm trying to find that balance. Um, that's so yeah, great. Face, Facebook, my Jennifer Whitaker Facebook page is probably where I'm most active. I'm also on LinkedIn. Awesome. For those listening in and still tuned, tuned in, I'm going to add those <laughs> links into the show notes of the episodes. So you can just find them easily and you don't need to go and waste time on the internet searching for them. So I can just help you with that. So Jennifer, closing question, and that is in what way would you like to either inspire or empower or motivate the world? I would love to motivate and inspire everyone in the world to focus their awareness on themselves instead of other people. The the world would change overnight if everybody woke up tomorrow morning and decided to focus on themselves and not everybody else, the world would change instantaneously. Absolutely love it. And for those still Mm -hmm. listening, that is not a selfish way. It's actually a very strong, courageous thing to do Mm -hmm. is to be self-aware and to start thinking about yourself more. Um, mm-hmm. As we do that, we start growing, we start understanding more and we actually start becoming more, you know, we have more humility, we have more grace, we have more, all of those beautiful traits and things. Uh, Jennifer, yeah, thank you for being on the show. Just thank you for being out in the world, helping people heal their trauma, helping them mm-hmm. deal with their emotions, helping them understand their inter- intergenerational trauma. And just thank you for helping mm-hmm. people overcome their fears 
um, Limit Team Believes, all those things. I just really honor your work. I really love and admire what you do. And I just love that you can push past people past their emotions, you know, and as you help push them past their obstacles and help them uncover more of their own potential. Just thank you for all that you do. Love You're it. welcome. Thank you for having me on the show, Christopher. It's been fun to be here today. <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer. Chat to you soon. And that is a wrap for this episode. If there is no space between stimulus and response, we automatically go into reaction. That was the biggest key takeaway for me today and literally something that would change my life. If you can too take something away, let me know. Let me know what that was. Let me know if it's an insight. Let me know if it's a question. Let me know if it's a new perspective or new strategy towards doing something. Let me know if you just got a smile on your face after listening or let me know if you got inspired. Let me know about anything that positively impacted you or someone else and shoot me an email at info at exploringpossibility.co.za or get in touch on Instagram. Just search for Exploring Possibility. As usual, guys, remember to put these things into place. Go and practice them. Go and play with them. Go and test these things out. Go and experiment what we speak about and let us know how it changes your life. As I said, please get in touch. And then last call of action today would be to join our community. Our community is slowly being filled with people who, like you, explore possibility. People that move and think exponentially. People that want to, they are deliberately trying to expand their potential. If that sounds like you, if you feel like you're someone that cannot stop thinking about how you can expand your potential or become a better version of yourself or create a bigger impact in your community. If you feel like you're someone that inspires or even want to inspire or be inspired or you want to motivate and you want to empower, this group is for you. This is where we learn. This is where we come together. This is where we meet like-minded people. And this is where we'll continue the conversations afterwards. This is where the real magic happens. To find that group, you can just go or find the community. You, just, you can just go onto Facebook and search for Exploring Possibility, Expanding Human Potential, or alternatively go onto the website, exploringpossibility.co.za, and just click Community in the menu bar. That's it for today. I'll see you guys in the next episode of Exploring Possibility, and don't be afraid to go and explore and find that possibility. Cheers, guys. Cheers.